Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for being our Father and our friend and giving us strength, Lord, to um, serve you with hearts filled with your love. Uh, Lord, even in the most difficult of circumstances in this world, we pray that you would help us to grow in you so much that we, Lord, could stand out even in horrible situations where hard things have to be done, hard decisions have to be made, that, Lord, it would be something that um, exemplifies, Lord, in how we handle it, uh, your love. And I pray, particularly for this subject today, that you would, Father, just uh, teach us and help us think through, Lord, uh, your truth in this situation. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Currently, and um, indeed, it never really seems to stop. You and I are living in a world filled with war. Uh, right now, we are seeing uh, on our televisions regularly, um, our computers, our phones, uh, images of horror coming out of Ukraine, and it um, seems almost every day. Civilian non-combatants are being slaughtered even as they try to flee. The Russians seem to be firing on buses and things of that nature, train stations. The Russian army has lost, over the past several weeks, it seems, around 25,000 soldiers. That's a lot of deaths, almost half of the deaths we had in Vietnam. I've not heard estimates of the number of dead and wounded Ukrainian forces, but I'm sure it is um, in the thousands as well. Our Pentagon spokesman choked up the other day when um, thinking about some of the images he has seen coming out of Ukraine. So he choked up a little bit. Uh, one of the Russian officials mocked him later about it. But he said that, uh, noting what the Russians have done, he says a great example of depravity. You know, in war, human life is often treated as cheap. Lines of restraint become overwhelmed by the forces of anger, desperation, and human sinfulness. No civilized person should ever want to go to war. And certainly no Christian should ever have a celebratory attitude about this most destructive of human activities. There's nothing ever to gloat, rejoice, and be celebratory about people uh, dying in that way. It is celebratory to sometimes be thankful for victory over evil in the world. But today, as we continue our True Line series, we're continuing with what we started last week in a message I entitled, Respecting and Honoring Life. So this will be Respecting and Honoring Life 2. And uh, this is message 31 in this series. As we're learning about our faith from the ground up in this series, right now we're focusing on the matter of how we mature as children of Christ, children of God, how we grow up in Christ to become more and more like Jesus. And uh, that is related in part to learning to obey what God says and also learning to feel as the way God says we should feel and think as God says the way we should act. So we should think, act, and feel according to what the Word says as we're led by the Spirit. And in that, seeking to grow up in Christ in a real world with all of its problems. He grew up in a real world with all of its problems. He was surrounded by war and all those kinds of things. And so that's what we've been focusing upon. And in seeking to understand his commands, we're working through the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20 and then how those th things are applied in the New Testament. And so we started last week looking at uh, 
the next commandment we'll come to in just a moment. And uh, we um, see how these things are applicable to us. So the title of the message today, again, is Respecting and Honoring Life too. So let's turn back to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. And then I'll read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And we're going to work through this. Now, I don't often preach on a subject like war uh, because of the fact that um, it's something that you I'm going to have to do a sort of a real teaching format, more so than a preaching format. But I think it's important for us to think through it. I addressed it in full, I think, back in 2006. So that's been a while. It's been about 15 years since we've dealt with it, 16 years. So I think in light of what's going on in our world, it's a good time to revisit it in this series as we're learning about what we believe. Well, what do we believe about these types of issues related to respecting life? So Exodus 20 and verse 13, you shall not murder. We started with that last week. And then Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, and this great uh, prophecy of hope. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And I love this verse in our Old Testament. They will beat their swords into plowshares. That is, they turn their swords from weapons to kill and they forge them into plows to plow the crops. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So, thou shalt not murder. Last week, we noted that this text, that word for murder in the Old Testament, applies to believers and that we're not to be people who commit homicide, nor do things that could bring us to be involved in negligent homicide, like drinking and driving. If you don't drink, you don't have to worry about that matter. We also saw that Jesus applied this in the New Testament, teaching us that if we're unjustly angry and refuse to forgive, Jesus says we're murderers already in our hearts because our heart is in the wrong place. And if we refuse to forgive, we show that our heart may not have ever been transformed. Sin begins in the heart. And so that verse, thou shalt not murder, applies to us more deeply in relationship to how we think and feel about others. We can't remain angry. And you remember John put it this way in 1 John 3 verse 15 about this idea of hatred of a brother. Very strong words. 1 John 3 verse 15 says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. It's a very strong condemnation, isn't it? We're not to be people who carry around murderous thoughts in our hearts, hatred of someone, anger that we don't resolve. And that passage in Matthew showed Jesus teaching us we're to be seeking to reconcile where relationships are broken as best we can, as Paul says, to live at peace as much as it lies with us, live at peace with all people. And you can go back and listen to that message if you want, if you missed it. 
But as we noted, this verse, thou shalt not murder, while it condemns homicide and hatred in our heart of others and our brothers and unforgiveness, it should not be the verse, thou shalt not murder. It should not be the verse upon which we think about whether or not war is right or wrong or whether capital punishment is right or wrong. And so the command to not murder does not apply to all situations where one human being may take another human being's life. It's not always murder for one human being to take another being, human being's life. And today I want us to consider what do, we, what do we believe, at least most of the Christian family, about war in relationship to the command that you shall not murder. In our Baptist Faith and Message, a little booklet I've asked you to pick up and read that has a summary of our doctrine, there's actually one of our articles that's entitled Peace and War. It's article number 16, and it's on the screen. And I'll just read it to you since we're working through our, our doctrine, and this is in our doctrine. It says, it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. In accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. Now, if you listen to that statement, you will notice that we do not come out in our statement and say that war is always wrong or unjust. And... Um, we should do all that we can to put an end to war. It should always be the last resort. But the reality is that war will be with us until Christ returns. As Jesus himself said, there will be wars and rumors of wars, right? All the way down to the end. And there will be times when you and I are going to be faced as Christians with what we should do in the face of that situation. I mean, just in my lifetime, I've lived through a nation that's been in war in Vietnam. Uh, war in uh, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, right? Other parts of the world. And so um, some of you live right before me and uh, through the Korean War. Some of you live through World War II. But just think about how many years have been devoted to war for our nation. And so most likely there will be more war to come. Well, the question for us is, can we respect and honor life and be people who at the same time go to war? That's what I want us to pursue for a few moments today. I'm dealing with this, obviously, in a, a big picture way for time's sake, because I'm going to say a lot less than needs to be said. But if you want some good books to read, we'll recommend those to you. And if you want to purchase those, we'll help get them in the bookstore uh, for you in the weeks ahead. So let's dig into this now and talk, first of all, about choices. Whether or not one should ever go to war. Choices. As Christians have approached this down through time, there have been about three positions Christians have taken. One position is that it is always right for me as a Christian to go to war. If my government says go to war, it's always right that I obey the government and I go to war. And people argue that because government is established by God and we're called to submit to the authority. So you remember in Titus chapter 2, Oh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, in verse 1, Paul says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And so that's Paul the apostle. 
And then the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So there are those who argue that there it is. We're always to submit to government. And so if uh, our president today in Congress says that we're declaring war, going to war as the United States of America, it's right for all the Christians to line up behind that and be willing to go to war. But then there's another position that's on the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is the position that some Christians have taken have said it's always wrong to go to war. And there's been that strong strain in Christian life. And this position is sometimes called pacifism. It's a position taken by some groups like the Anabaptists. Or you and I would know the Anabaptists today as the Mennonites. They are founded by a brother named Menno Simons. And the Mennonites, they're not Amish. They're evangelical Christians like us. They don't eschew having uh, modern tools and things of that nature. Some of you may have had uh, Mennonites build barns around here for you. I know at least one family's had them build a large facility for them here. And they submit to government except where it would violate God's will to do so. And as they understand the Bible, to use violence even in self-defense is to violate God's will. And so in that understanding, even if your nation is being overrun by armies, you're not to resist by force. Any killing in their mindset is murder. So they apply the text in that way. And they take Jesus' words about turning the other cheek, resisting not an evil person, right? We take that to understand one-on-one relationships. They take that and understand that to mean not only one-on-one relationships, interrelationships, but also all the way up to the level of how we respond in war. We don't go to war as Christians. We don't murder. In their minds, it would be murder to kill. Their, their most notable confession of faith, their form of the Baptist faith and message, their old uh, statement, the Dordrecht Confession of 1632. So they've been around a while. And in Article uh, 14, it says this, regarding revenge whereby we resist our enemies with the sword, we believe and confess that the Lord Jesus has forbidden his disciples and followers of all revenge and resistance and has thereby commanded them not to return evil for evil nor railing for railing, but to put up the sword into the sheath or as the prophet foretold them, beat them into plowshares as we read a bit ago out of Isaiah. So in times of war, the Mennonites... And other believers, like some Seventh-day Adventists, they would be what you and I would call conscientious objectors. They would flee if the government tried to force them to fight, if there was no other alternative. Or they would be willing to go to jail because they would say it's better to suffer for doing the right thing than to sin against God by going to war. And so they would be penalized and, and they would willingly take that. Or sometimes they would seek to serve as non-combatants, and some governments allow them the opportunity that if you're a conscientious objector and you don't want to take up arms to kill somebody, you can serve in some other support role in relationship to the military effort, either domestically or sometimes you may serve uh, actually on the field. So back when there was a draft and you didn't have these types of options to make a choice, 
People often got drafted, and some of them were conscientious objectors. And they sought to try to move in a, in a different way. And so the movie Hacksaw, Hacksaw Ridge uh, was released in 2016. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge is based on the true story of a man named Desmond Doss. And Desmond Doss, when he was drafted, he refused to fight. He was a Seventh-day Adventist. But he served as a heroic medic, and he was uh, given the, the uh, Medal of Honor. He's the first conscientious objector to ever receive it for his actions during the Battle of Okinawa. And so he was a medic on Okinawa, and so he single-handedly putting his, his life on the line without any weapons, right? As they were being cut to pieces, he pulled and saved 75 men from the field. He was a very brave man, but he out of his devotion to Jesus, said, I will not take up arms. And he suffered at the hands of his own comrades, his own uh, fellow military Americans, as he was trying to get into the, into the war uh, in that way, trying to go that direction. He suffered for that. And so that is a, a position that says it's never right to go to war. Some Christians take that position. And then there's another position that says, well, it's sometimes permissible. And that's the third way. And this is the position that generally uh, our statement of faith supports. And it's where I would be. This approach says it's sometimes permissible for Christians to fight and to go to war. But our position as Christians is never this. Our position is never my country right or wrong. It's never our position. Because we have a king who is above the kings of this land. And we must always understand what he has to say. So we never just say, my government, right or wrong. For the government is seeking to make us do something that is wrong, like a war of aggression, expansion, colonization, and not self-defense, we are not to submit to that command. So in one case from history, an argument can be made that it was right and just for a Christian to fight on the side of the Allies in World War II, which some of you did. But it would have been wrong for a German Christian to fight on the side of the Nazis in their war of aggression. A German Christian who would not have been a, allowed to be an objector under Hitler's rule, you couldn't object, right? So what would you do? Well, you would try to flee and get out of the country if you could. And if that were not possible, then perhaps you would pledge allegiance to an allied government that you agreed with that were waging just war, and you would fight in the underground resistance with them and be willing to put your life on the line, which a famous Christian theologian did that. And there's some big books written about him named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian. Brilliant. He could have stayed here in the States. He went back home. He was in the resistance against Hitler. He eventually got arrested, sent to prison. And a few days before the end of World War II, when Hitler was still alive, he gave the personal order to have Dietrich Bonhoeffer hanged. And he died as a martyr, but he died resisting in that way. But the central point is that there are times when God would say war is right, and a believer is to take up arms in such a war. One is not considered a murderer in that context, just as you're not a murderer in self-defense. Somebody's trying to take your life. You're not a murderer in the sense when you go to war in that way. And some of you, maybe you fought in some of these wars, and you struggled in your mind and in your heart because you had to kill somebody. And maybe that was true for you in World War II. We still have some veterans around. And you carry a lot of that around, a lot of deep scars, as though you think that you were a murderer. But you were not a murderer in the sense of what the Bible would say a murderer is. 
you didn't commit homicide, if you were acting in the context of war, a just war, then God permits war in those, in those ways. This is never to be done without considering whether or not a war is one in which we can fight. But nevertheless, there are times where we, we can be involved in war or serve as police officers, right, and things of that nature. Well, how do we go about thinking through this matter then? Like anything else, second point, a believer's framework, how do we think through this? Well, like anything else in life, we've got to begin with Scripture. And part of what I'm doing in this series, I want you to know that when something comes up in life, your default position should be, what does the Word of God have to say about this? Right? It's my authority. And if it's not a direct command in the Word of God, well, what are the principles in the Word of God? And then if the Bible doesn't address it at all, right? Whether or not to have a computer in your home. Well, that may become a matter of conscience. And uh, you need to work through that with your heart before the Lord and working with other believers and to pray through it and make a decision in that way. But we begin with the Scripture. And so as we think about this case of war, We've got to start there. If the Bible addresses it in some way, then we need to begin to build upon that. So, how does the Bible address this issue? Well, a few things that we can see is that God himself sanctions some wars in the Old Testament. He commands some people to go to war. And I had Michael read the psalm this morning where David talks about uh, him being in war, being trained for war, and how God protected him. And sometimes God uses one government as an instrument of wrath on an evil culture. I believe God raised up nations to, de to defeat the, the wicked culture of the Nazis that was seeking to destroy all of Europe and to take over, really, the world as much as he could. But we find God sending Israel to be uh, his instrument of punishment. If you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 9, in verses 1 through 5, this is when Israel is getting ready to go into the promised land. It says, Hear Israel, Deuteronomy 9.1, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. And after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is doing, uh, going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God is working with the nation of Israel, bringing them into the promised land. But he alludes here to the promise made to Abraham. How, how long were the Israelites down in Egypt? Does anybody know? 400 years. They were in slavery. Why were they there for 400 years in slavery? They were there in slavery for 400 years because God said in the book of Exodus, when he's speaking to Abraham, I'm not going to give you the land yet, and your people are going to be down in Egypt for 400 years. But the reason there's going to be this delay is because he says that the sins of the Amorites have not reached their full measure. 
That is, I'm giving these people 400 years to repent, to turn from their sin. But they did not. So God says, I'm giving this to you, and he raises Israel up to be his hand of judgment and justice against those people. So God himself sanctions some wars in the Old Testament. And if he sanctions some wars, then in principle, we need to think through, are there other ways he sanctions war? And obviously, we believe he does. In the New Testament, where do we find anything in relationship to it? Well, in the New Testament, if you turn to the book of Luke chapter 3, we see that in the New Testament, people are not condemned for being soldiers. So if God was against war and against a Christian being involved in war, then there would be condemnation for a Christian being in the military, right? But you remember in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, when John the Baptist is preaching and he's calling people to repentance. In Luke chapter 3, verse 14, we hear this in the Gospel of Luke. Then some soldiers ask him, and what should we do? That is, what should we do to be right with God? How do we repent? And what did John say? Leave the military, lay down your sword, walk away, don't ever do this again, you terrible person. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So they could use their power sometimes to extort money and misrepresent people, accuse them, and get money off of that. That's what he dealt with. He didn't say, leave the military. And then I think a more definitive case is we come to the book of Acts chapter, chapter 10, where the gospel first goes to the Gentiles. That is, when uh, Cornelius gets saved, Peter goes to his house, Jew going to a Gentile's house to lead him to Christ because God sent him there. Now, what was Cornelius' occupation in Acts chapter 10 in verse 1? It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. So, he's an officer in the Roman army in what was known as the Italian regiment. So, Peter goes to him, and Cornelius responds and gives his life to Christ. And if you come down to chapter uh, 10, verse 44, when he gets ready to baptize him, you know, we ask people questions before they get baptized. We want to know your testimony. Are you in agreement with what we believe? Those kinds of things. Have you truly met Christ centrally as your Savior? Have you repented and believed? And in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on, even on the Gentiles. But they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So Cornelius is not asked to leave the military. Here is he. He's baptized, and he's still a Roman officer. And Peter does not condemn him, does not say, this is part of your coming to Christ, that you must walk away from this in your life. So God sanctions some wars in the Old Testament. He doesn't condemn soldiers in the New Testament. And then thirdly, as we think about whether or not we should ever go to war, and we believe that sometimes you can, governments are established by God to defend people. It's one of the central roles of government. That God has given to government the central ro role. One of its central roles is to protect the people who are its citizens. 
whether it be a police force or a state government or a national government. And so God has raised up government to restrain evildoers and to punish evildoers. And it seems that uh, there are those in our government structure that doesn't seem to understand their role anymore. That their role is to restrain evildoers, to protect the people who aren't trying to tear up and steal and destroy, and to bring punishment and and a measure of fear upon the evildoers in a culture who are intent on having their way and preying upon the weak. And so if you go back to Romans chapter 13 and verse 4, Paul puts this about uh, the government. He says in verse 3, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the what? Sword for no reason. That sword is an instrument of force. They are God's servants, agents of what? Are y'all reading in the Bible here with me? I'm trying to teach you. I can't teach you if you're not following along. They are God's servants, agents of what? Wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So that's government's role, to protect the people. And so loving my enemy does not mean that a government does not protect its people, even by force, even as in personal situations. Loving my enemy would not mean that I stand by and let somebody rape my wife or kidnap my child. No, I have the right to resist, the right to use force. Government has the right to use force. We're allowed self-defense. Remember in Luke chapter 22 when um, Jesus is getting close to being arrested. And we see his disciples are with him. You ever notice this in your Bible? In Luke chapter 22, in verses 36 through 38. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords, and that's enough, he replied. The idea here is that uh, these swords were not for skinning rabbits as they walked along the trail, right? These swords were for self-defense from people who might rob them, try to hurt them along the road with Jesus. I guess Jesus could have zapped them, but they had swords, right? And they were there to defend him in that sense until he was ready to allow himself to be arrested. And that's when he says, put your sword away. But... Self-defense is allowed. So the idea is that government is established to protect us, and so that is a measure of self-defense on our behalf by government to punish the evildoers so they don't harm and rob and steal. And the same thing applies not only within our borders, but outside of our borders. If a country is trying to invade us and harm us, our government has the responsibility to defend us and to protect us, and that involves us being a part of that. John Calvin, who stands at the head of the Presbyterian and Reformed movements, made this connection when he said, quote, For it makes no difference whether it be a king or the lowest of the common folk who invades a foreign country in which he has no right. All such must equally be considered robbers and punished accordingly. 
And that will be the position of most denominations of Christians they followed down through time. So the Lutheran Confession of Faith, Augsburg Confession says, Christians may lawfully bear civil office, engage in just war, act as soldiers. Or the Westminster Confession of the Presbyterian, 1646, like our Baptist faith and message, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate or a government leader for that end. They may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So the position of most Christians down through time is to say that war is allowed and sanctioned by times. God has sanctioned war. He doesn't condemn being a soldier in the New Testament. He calls government to use force to protect its people, even as we have the right to self-defense as well if somebody's trying to harm us in our offices, my office of being a husband, my office of being a dad. Uh, that I have self-defense rights. And if somebody's trying to attack me for being a Christian and they want to kill me, then I make the decision to turn the other cheek. Let them martyr me. Let them kill me in that way for the sake of the gospel if I'm alone dealing with that myself. Now, if you were listening, and what I said just a moment reading those other confessions of faith, you heard the phrase, war that is just, or just war. That's a concept Christian thinkers have worked out down through the centuries to help a person decide whether or not a war is just and thus a war in which we can fight with a clear conscience as horrible as it might be and as horrible of a thought that we might have to kill somebody. And there are different lists and arrangements of these principles, but I want to draw upon a Baptist theologian, and there's eight of these real quick. We're going to run through them, and then we'll be pretty much done. So how do I decide if something's a just war? If my country goes to war tomorrow, how can I decide if it's a just war? Well, first, is it a just cause? That is, is it morally right, such as a defense of my nation or an alliance of nations recognizing, uh, recognized by standing governments, such as NATO? And so if nations are attacked, we have alliances that our people have supported, our officials have supported. But in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we see Jesus coming back to wage war at the end. And the Bible says in Revelation 19, 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. So is it a just cause? And a just cause is going to be something where it is a self-defense type of thing. Is there a competent authority that is Is the war declared by a recognized and competent authority in a nation? Our Constitution says that that our Congress is supposed to be the one that declares war. That's not always the case, but that's what it says. But the idea is this war being waged under a competent government authority. It can't be a just war if it's not. And so these guys running around our country organizing militias because they say the government is bad and they're going to wage war against the government. They're going to shooting ranges and they're buying 50 caliber machine guns and call themselves militias. They're not competent authorities and they have no authority to be doing what they're doing. They're sinning against God in relationship to that. We organize under competent authorities. And if the federal government grows to be so corrupt, then we look to the state authorities to organize ourselves under. If that gets to be corrupt, we'd organize ourselves perhaps under a local official. But we're always working with government. Three, comparative justice. 
That is, comparing this, are the actions of the enemy more morally wrong and the actions of the nation going to war in comparison more right? So if we think about Russia and Ukraine, obviously Russia is attacking a country that it considers its own, but it's not its own. Stalin tried to starve the Ukrainians to death back earlier in the 20th century. There's always been that tension there. But the Ukrainians are a self-governing nation. A few of them are evangelicals. Most of them are not. They are Christians in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. But I think by comparison, we can say that fighting on the Ukrainian side, right, would be more just right now than fighting on the Russian side. And I think that would be a just war if you were in the Ukrainian army right now. Right intention is the purpose to go to war to protect and promote justice and righteousness and not pillage and destroy. Is it the last resort? Have all other reasonable means been exhausted? Is there a probability of success? That is, can the war be won? If I'm about to be overwhelmed by forces, it's going to wipe everybody out. It may be more wise for the ruler to say, we're going to see that most of our people are spared from dying and being wiped out by surrender. And so leaders have to make that decision. Is it something that is, has a probability of success? Proportionality. Will the good results that come from the victory outweigh the harm that comes by war? And is it done with the right spirit? Is the war engaged with reluctance and sorrow rather than simply delighting in war? Some people love war. Patton, as great a general as he was in World War II, if you remember the movie, when he's walking through the battlefield and uh, seeing the, all the destruction from the war the night before, and he talks about, man, I love this. He loved war. And some people love war. Some people love us to go to war. Some people think we should always be expanding our borders and being further out. That is not how you and I need to think about this as believers. It has to be in the right spirit. And I'm not trying to cover it today, but there's also in Christian ethics thought out ways of what is the right way to conduct a war. If you're in a war, how do you do it in the right way? And not sin against God and how you go about it. When President Eisenhower was um, leaving office, he was our great general in World War II, then he became president of our country. When he was uh, retiring, he gave his farewell address. And he warned our country about something in his farewell address. He warned us about the growing military-industrial complex. And his point was, the world has changed. And we can't sit back anymore and not at least be prepared to defend ourselves. Because when World War II came, we were not prepared. It took a while for things to get online, right? To catch up. To be prepared to fight. And with the advance of weapons, how quickly things can come at us. How quickly a missile can come from somewhere in the world. His point is, the United States can no longer totally disarm itself, basically and not uh, worry, and and somebody does attack us, then we build up our weapons. He's saying that's no longer a possibility. But he goes on to say, as things are changing in our nation here, we need to be aware of the danger of this military-industrial complex. And I believe President Eisenhower was, um, I think he was a Christian. And here's what he said. He said, a vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be right, or must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. 
American makers of plowshares could, with time and is required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We've been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He is saying there is a danger that if all this stuff is being built, there are going to be forces moving, wanting us to use it, wanting us to expand. And he says that's a danger, and that can lead us into sinful areas, wrongful areas. He doesn't use the word sinful, but wrongful areas, right, of war. And so I think that's very wise for us to remember as believers that there are times when we can fight, but is it a just war or just a war? And if it's just a war, I'm not going to be involved in it. And I'll resist, I'll go to prison, I'll flee, whatever I have to do. But if it is a just war, I want to be somebody that you can count on in the trenches and being willing to lay down my life for the things that I believe. And so as we close this out, I told you it would be a different kind of a message today. What is our response to this? Let me share several things with you, and then we will have a time of commitment. First, if you haven't trusted Christ, I invite you to come to the Prince of Peace, who will ultimately make all things new. He'll begin making you new in relationship to God. He'll give you power to live for Him here. He'll fill your heart with love and a new perspective. Forgive you of all of your sins and give you eternal life and prepare you to go someday in that new heaven and new earth where there will be no more war. Isn't it going to be wonderful someday to be living for eternity in a place where people don't kill each other? Right? They don't build bombs. They don't maim and kill. Man, I want to be there. And I hope all of you do. We need to pray for our politicians, our citizen military, our volunteer army now, and leaders that they will wage only just war and seek to avoid war at all costs. We also must be considerate of one another. We may not all see things in the same way in a fallen world, whether a war is just or unjust, and we may truly be brothers in Christ. And so we have to be considerate of each other. Remember in the Civil War, you had brother against brother and people fighting in their minds for different reasons. We must resist the spirit of celebrating war. We're to be known as peacemakers, as God's people, and we should be for the making of the world a more peaceful place. And then we need to pray for those who have been scarred physically and mentally by war and its effects. And again, I know some of you in this room and listening online have been Scarred by the effects of having been in war. It's affected you. It may have affected your family. Uh, some people come back with uh, traumatic stress problems. And we've dealt with people like that down through the years. And I just want you to know that, um, that God loves you and that um, as you were acting justly in what you did, you're not considered a murderer. And if you need more counsel and help in relationship to scars you bear, we'd be thankfully glad to help you find the help that you may need.
And so, again, I know this is a different type of message, but as we're on this point about honoring and respecting life, I think we need to deal with this one, and so we have, and I hope that uh, it's given you something to think about and pray about in the days ahead, and when the next war comes, uh, we have to decide how we're going to handle it. And finally, I want to say this, whether or not we consider our nation being at war as being unjust, you and I as God's church must always be those who love and pray for those who are fighting. If we don't agree with what they're doing, if they're part of our family and our country, they need to have our prayers, our love as God's people, our concern for them and their families in that way. Uh, we must not ever be caught up in some of the things that happened in the Vietnam War and how some of the veterans were treated when they came back. That should never happen, and it should never happen with the people of God.